If you would, uh, turn with me in your copies of God's Word to the third chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 3. And we'll commence our reading there at verse 16. John chapter 3, and starting at the 16th verse. Here again, beloved, the Holy Word of the only, the living God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Amen, and may God bless us under these public readings of his word. We come to the end of this very familiar text this evening. Our passage is really just verses 19 to 21. The concluding word in this dialogue between Christ and the Pharisee. I've reserved comments at this point about the structure of this discourse to this moment, because in many ways... I think we've seen the structure as, as the text itself is rather straightforward. There is, as it were, a very logical progression in this conversation between the Pharisee and the Redeemer. But I want us, as we close, to, to look at this briefly again, to see how the Lord has, has led us and has led Nicodemus to see these truths. You remember that it begins with, with Nicodemus, his approach to Christ in the evening in which Nicodemus says that that he sees that Jesus is a teacher come from God. That's the first step in this conversation. To which Jesus replies, You may see, yes, but none perceive unless they are born from above. You say, I'm a teacher come from God. And I say unto you that none truly see the kingdom of God but those who are born from above. This brings, of course, Nicodemus to ask the question, really, a question asked out of incredulity. Well, what is it that men then must do? How can they go from seeing to, to rightly perceiving? And so the Lord explains. He says that to be born from above, this new birth is a work of the Spirit of God. And then he goes on to explain to Nicodemus very directly, answering his question that men are utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God to effect this work. This leads Nicodemus then to say very pointedly that he finds all of this quite, quite impossible. Here we see the Pharisees' unbelief on full display, notwithstanding his earlier and wonderful professions, to which the Lord responds with rebuke. Your identity as a teacher in Israel, 
Your exposure to the word of God renders your unbelief at this moment most inexcusable. The guilt for your unbelief is incredibly aggravated. But then the Lord goes further. You remember he explains how to Nicodemus the Lord will do this work of of really bringing men to see aright. You remember that he begins in verse 15 by reminding him that the Son of God, the Son of Man, will be made a curse. He will be like the serpent, in which one would see both the wrath of God and also the mercy offered to them. And then he goes to tell Nicodemus the cause, why God would, would send the Son of God, the Son of Man into the earth, and that cause, of course, was divine love. He goes further and tells Nicodemus that the offer is wide. It is but whosoever will may come. We come to this last part of the conversation in which Nicodemus is told something more. In fact, Nicodemus is really told something more about himself than he is about Christ. Here the Lord gently tells Nicodemus who he is, who Nicodemus is, and who all of mankind are as they remain aloof from Christ. The text is straightforward. The Lord says here plainly that this is the condemnation, and he's referring there to belief, unbelief rather. He says that the unbelief here described in the preceding verses, well, friend, it's clearly condemned. Uh, There is no excuse for it. And he shows us pointedly why, that light is come into the world. Describing himself, it's an incredible claim, friend. He says that he is light incarnate. Plato, Aristotle, Pythagoras, all of these great philosophers claimed many things, but none claimed this to be light incarnate, walking among men. Christ knew who he was. And he would tell Nicodemus clearly that this, his coming to the earth, has rendered inexcusable those in the visible church of God who continued to reject him through unbelief. But then the Lord goes further. He proceeds to explain why these ones do not believe. Here, at this point, Nicodemus gains far more than he asked for. Here, the Lord not only tells us that unbelief is guilty, but he traces unbelief to the root. He says, first of all, men loved darkness. And then, he says, neither cometh to the light. This is why men reject. This is why, says Christ, men remain under condemnation. Strikingly, friend, this is why Nicodemus is still where he is. You remember, Nicodemus came professing faith, came professing to believe. But in this text, clearly Nicodemus is told, you don't receive his witness because you still love darkness. But then secondly, he says this, that those who do come to the light, well, they manifest that their works, they are wrought in God. And so he makes a contrast, showing us first of all the root of unbelief, and then secondly, the manner or the exercise of those who have true faith. 
It's a wonderful contrast. It's a staggering contrast. And it's one that I want us to see this evening, especially because this contrast highlights something that Christ has already told us, already taught to the Pharisee, and that is this, that only divine grace inclines sinners to Christ. Only divine grace inclines sinners to Christ. I want us to see that in three ways. I want us to see the darkness within sinners, their utter dependence upon God, and then thirdly and finally, I want us to see the declaration made by those who are inclined to Christ by by grace. So take first of all, as our first point, the darkness that's in man. The Lord says very pointedly that this is man's plight, that they love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. He goes on to say that they hate the light. Now, friend, what the Lord is answering for us here is an unasked question, and that is, why is it that men continue to reject the offers, the free offers of Christ? Why is it that they don't comply, though the offer is made so widely and so fully? Here Christ tells us, they love darkness and they hate light. And he goes further, friend, to tell us that Christ knows this. And he says others should then see this because of their evil deeds. Now, friend, what you and I are to remember in this text then is that Christ is saying that the evil deeds are not what corrupt men. The evil deeds simply exhibit what is in the heart of man. Of course, Christ will will elaborate on this right throughout his ministry. But the point is, the evil deeds are not the fountain, but rather the stream that flows from the darkness that resides within the breast of men. In other words, friend, Christ teaches us that men choose according to their natural inclination. They choose according to their nature, and their nature is evil. They are, as John says in John 1, not only in darkness, but they are darkness. All of that is simply reiterated in our text. The text teaches us that men are naturally inclined to evil. Fallen man is naturally inclined to evil. And I want you to notice, friend, in this text, you and I are to see free will. That is a proper definition of free will in full display. Men choose according to the evil that is within and they choose without coercion. Uh, Friend, we need to remember that the doctrine of free will, that is the true doctrine of free will, is always to be professed. That is, that men may freely choose according to their nature, and so they do, and so this text teaches us that they do. They certainly choose according to their nature. The problem is their nature is inclined to evil. What you see in this text, friend, then, is this. Just what you have in James 1. Every man is tempted when he is drawn out of his own lust and enticed. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, says there James. Uh, Friend, what he's giving us here is a very bleak picture of man at his irreducible minimum. He's inclined to evil. 
lust lies within. The older theologians used a word that I wish we would revive, and that is, that is of concupiscence. And the idea is that there is a root of iniquity within. And so men choose because of that inward inclination. As the Lord says in, in Romans 8, all, all of mankind, they are, they are possessed of a carnal mind that is enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, and neither indeed can be. Why? Well, friend, because of this root of iniquity within. Because of what Christ says in our text. That by nature they are inclined to love darkness. And so, friend, they will not be subject to the law of God. And because their nature is so inclined, they cannot be. Now, it's important for me to remind you, friend, that, that that impossibility is a moral one, not a physical one. What the text is teaching us here is men, men cannot because ultimately they will not. Their nature will not allow them so. They will always exercise their free will against God. This is obviously a text that strikes then right across the back of this doctrine of man's natural goodness, his inherent goodness. Christ knows nothing of that doctrine. Uh, friend, the world can say that men are basically good, but it flies in the face of what you have revealed to us in the text. Men are not good. They love darkness and they hate light. The root of iniquity is not through nurturing. Truly, it is nature. A friend, that is the darkness within men. But we can go a step further, and that brings us to our second point this evening, and that is this text teaches us man's utter dependence upon God to be taken away from that darkness, to be inclined to the light. We're told here that men do not come to the light. And Christ says here, lest their deeds should be reproved. There are two things, perhaps subtle in the text, that we could quickly miss. I want you to notice, first of all, that Christ here has a reference to conscience. Conscience is, literally, with knowledge. These ones are with the knowledge that if their deeds are exposed, it will be very clear to all that they're evil. In other words, Christ says very pointedly, the wicked in view here know that they are wicked. They know they are sinful. Conscience is there. Man knows he doesn't need anyone to tell him that, that their creator is displeased with their behavior. That is, of course, the inner witness of conscience. And, friend, we, we, should, we should marvel. Uh, we really ought to marvel at the atheist who, who will say that they have a conscience but can't tell us why. Here, Christ tells us why. God has left this within man, reminding himself that he is at odds with his creator. But the second thing that I want us to draw down on is the image that Christ here deploys, and that is of a man engaged in sin in darkness. Our translation here could mislead us in terms of how we, how we see the image. The word here, reproved, is really the word discovered, but but even further, the idea behind it is foiled or thwarted. In other words, friend, the image, well, let me put it to you this way. 
There is one way of looking at the text where you have a sinner who, because his conscience tells him, knows that if he goes before God, his, his deeds will be judged, lawfully condemned. And so because he's afraid of such a sentence, he, he as it were, holds himself back. And he doesn't comply with the calls for pardon, the, 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 the calls to come to Christ, because it's too good to be true. He, as it were, holds himself back because of shame and, and because of, of fear. That's one way of reading this text, and that's not, friend, that's not the case at all. It's far darker. He does not want to come into the light lest his sin be thwarted. The image you and I are supposed to have here instead is that of a criminal. Yes, he hates his punishment. But it's primarily his love for sin that leads him to refuse pardon. And that, friend, is so much darker. So much darker than I think we realize. Men do not stand aloof from Christ. Because they are, as it were, in their heart of hearts, ashamed of their sin. Christ says here they stand aloof because they love darkness. They may hate the punishment, but as it were in this text, they love their sin even more. And this compels them to stay. It's a staggering picture. It's a staggering picture because Christ tells us even the sentence of condemnation won't drive these ones to seek pardon. Unless there is some radical change in their nature, they can be sentenced to eternal torment and still they will not give up their love for sin. All of this, friend, teaches us, does it not, that men will only come to Christ by an omnipotent work of grace. If the threat of eternal torment won't drive them from it, but, but still they'll hold to their sin in their hearts, then surely something else must be done. And, and friend, this is what the scriptures teach with one voice. Let's, allow, let's imagine for a moment the hypothetical that, that let's say God entices the wicked through, through giving good things to them, as it were, displaying His goodness, urging them to leave sin and find in Him true enjoyment and pleasure. Will that, will that do the turn? Will, will it lead men to give off their sin? The prophet Isaiah says, Let favor be showed to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. Such is the heart of man. Give him all of the good things that God may provide, and still he'll choose sin. Well, then let's go to the other extreme. Let's say, give him the greatest pains. Chase him, as it were, away from sin through flame and torment. Revelation 22, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still, and he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. In the lake of fire, they still choose their filth. Even under exquisite pain, they still choose their sin. The only way that men comply with the offer of the gospel is by a work of divine grace. Nothing else will do the turn. No man, says Christ, can come to me 
except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. One commentator said that this text should lay every man very low before God. And I hope, I hope we agree. This is, an, this is an incredibly dark picture of what is in the heart of every man and woman outside of Christ. Friend, this is a picture of your heart and mine apart from the grace of God. You realize that. Friend, on the last day, if you were sentenced to eternal torment, you would acknowledge the sentence, you would acknowledge the judge. But such is the natural bent of the heart, you would still choose sin and eternal torment over God. I want you to know, friend, and this is often, I think, forgotten, the pains of hell are not enjoyed by the wicked. But still, if you ask even those in hell today, would you give up your sin and submit to God? They would choose their sin and their torment over him. Because men love darkness. And apart from the grace of God, they always will. That brings us, as we close thirdly and finally, to the contrast to those who are possessed of saving faith. And here Christ describes them as those who come to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest. Now, friend, I want you to notice there are a number of radical differences there. First of all, I want you to notice that their deeds are different. Uh, These ones do truth, says Christ. That is that they do actual good. It's, it's, it's very striking that the Lord here describes their deeds as being truth. The sense is that these are works that are sincerely performed. In other words, he's not talking here about hypocrites. Those who, who have a show of goodness. No, they do truth. They work sincerely and from the heart. And that certainly is very much contrasted with the wicked in our text. Who love darkness and who love it so much that even under sentencing, they prefer their darkness to pardon. The second radical difference is the source of their behavior. These are those who do very differently than the wicked. You remember Christ says he sees the root of iniquity by what the wicked do. He traces their evil deeds back to their evil heart. Well, friend, if these ones are doing truth, then you and I are to do the same thing. These ones who are so described do so from the heart. There's something within them that is different that then produces these deeds of truth. Their sources then of of working is entirely different, are entirely different. But thirdly, and perhaps more to the point, friend, the, the radical difference here is the boldness that these ones have. These ones go before the searcher of hearts, they go before the judge of all the earth, who judges rightly, and they come so that their deeds may be manifest. Such is their boldness. Their conscience is not not urging them to, to flee, but they even go boldly before 
the one who is judge of all. These ones have a conscience that is manifestly acquitted before the bar of heaven, as opposed to those who love darkness, whose consciences read out their own condemnation. But I want to go a step further as we close. Christ says that they come forward in this manner, that it may be made manifest that their deeds are wrought in God. It's a striking turn of phrase there. Because here the Lord is saying that they come forward that it may be made known that what they have done, their lives testify that God has been working in them. Their deeds are performed through God, wrought in God, as our translations have it. My friend, if you remember then, back to what we find at the very beginning of this conversation, where Christ says that one must be born from above, then this text really, really brings us to a genuine conclusion. What I mean by that is just this, that, friend, what Christ here is describing is that it will be evident that these ones were born from above because their deeds were wrought through divine grace. That's what he has in view here. And what this teaches us then, friend, is that the believer's spirit-wrought faith is manifest in their works. It's straightforward. And there are so many texts that we could go to. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6 He works in you both to will and to do according to his own good pleasure. Philippians chapter 3. And we could go on and on. The texts of scripture are very clear. Those who are truly saved, their works are performed through divine grace. Uh, the Lord, of course, makes the, the analogy with the vine to teach us that very truth. The life-giving sap flows through him to them. But the picture, friend, that I want you to keep in front of you this evening is, is what was given to us in Isaiah 41. The picture there is Jacob. And Jacob, after the Lord, through his prophet, has called him a worm, and he says, Jacob will thresh mountains. Well, friend, if he was just previously described a worm, you recognize that that's, that is really the lowest of the lesser creatures we could imagine, really. Those, those are the kinds of creatures that are crushed by mountains. But in Isaiah 41, the Lord says, I will make you like a threshing instrument and you will thresh the mountains. Jacob's deeds will be wrought in God, and it will be manifestly so. Friend, all of this teaches us, does it not, what we've been insisting on all this evening? That the only way that, that one is really inclined to take hold of Christ is by being so inclined by divine grace, having a nature changed by the, spirit work, by the Spirit's work. And at the end of the day, as Christ here explains to us very pointedly, at the last day it will be very manifest that all of their works, from the moment of their new birth to the end, were wrought in God. 
They were performed as God had regenerated them and by his spirit had quickened them. Friend, as we look at this text, all of these things are to lay us low, but also to lead us to rejoice that our God is pleased to save such sinners. Friend, as we look at this text, the first question I'd ask, really the main question this evening, is have you been led to mourn your concupiscence? Have you been led to mourn the root of iniquity? There are so many who think that that mourning for sin is simply mourning over specific deeds. That's not genuine contrition, friend, not at all. Genuine contrition goes to the source, always. It does not say only, Lord, I have done evil things. It goes to the heart, and he says that the fountain of that evil is within me. Friend, there is no true contrition without that. There is no genuine confession of sin without coming to this lamp. And so have we been led to mourn what Christ here so so clearly depicts for us in our text? But friend, for our comfort this evening, this text shows us, does it not, the wideness of divine love. It's a heart-wrenching picture, isn't it, that we're given here. Christ tells us why men reject his offers of pardon to his face. And it's not because men ultimately believe it's just too good to be true. It's not ultimately because men are, are afraid to move forward. It ultimately, says Christ, is because men love darkness. The king comes to the rebels and he, and he urges them to lay down their weapons and, and calls upon them to, to, to cease their rebellion and they will have full and free pardon. Christ here says that the rebels love their treason so. That even though they sit under the sentence of condemnation that will one day be executed, they will not lay down their arms. Friend, that is man by nature. And yet, he urges that the call of the gospel would go far and wide. Yet, he is pleased to stoop down and rescue those who are at enmity with him, such enmity with him. Friend, such is the wideness of divine love. As we leave this text, friend, as we hold all of what's gone before together, the exhortation is to believe it to believe every part of it. And not just to believe that Christ came historically, though we ought to. Not just to believe, friend, that that sinners may be pardoned as they come to him by faith, though we ought to. This text also urges us to believe what the scriptures say about your heart and mine. And friend, I would submit to you that in our generation especially, this is where men and women will find greatest difficulty. We are called to believe the text. And we're called then to flee to Christ for cleansing. Uh, Friend, this is an urgent call even now to seek refuge in him and in him only.
from condemnation and from corruption. This is then a call to rest in him. And what this text teaches us is that at, at the end, it will be manifest that his people performed what they did through divine and persevering grace. He'll keep them to the end. Their faithfulness will be maintained by his grace to the end. And so this is a call to rest in him and him only. May the Lord lead us to that. Amen.